you're new with us, we're starting a new series tonight, and I need to do two introductions, uh, one for the series and then one for Romans uh, chapter 12 as we uh, try to think together for the next uh, few weeks about living out our, our dual citizenship uh, as citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of heaven, and our uh, citizenship here on earth. So uh, we're going to talk tonight about our life together in this divided age. Uh, so I did not know where Shane was going necessarily, but he kind of gave the prequel, I guess you could say, uh, to the sermon series last week. Uh, and so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, it's always a joy to study your word together in community and to um, just behold the, the words of life. And we pray as we study it together that uh, as uh, it happened on the Emmaus Road when Jesus expounded the scriptures, the disciples' hearts burned within them as he explained to them uh, the meaning of the Bible. And we pray that you would do that for us tonight, not just give us an intellectual uh, uh, sense of understanding, but, but warm our hearts uh, to your truth, stir our affections for our Savior, that we may truly love one another as Christ has loved us. And we pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So how can we love each other during an emotionally charged election season? And I think that's stating it mildly, isn't it? An emotionally charged election season. What are our ethical and civic responsibilities here on earth? How can we do justice and love mercy, making a kingdom impact in this world? How can we avoid political extremism and instead give our ultimate allegiance to King Jesus? These are some of the questions that we're going to consider in the next few weeks, and I just want to state up front that I have no interest in endorsing any candidate, let me put you at ease, or any particular party, either at the local or the federal level. My goal in the series is not to agitate or to go on a political rant, but to expound the Bible, to look at some key uh, biblical passages. So politics is in the background, Jesus is in the foreground. Uh, we want to study the scriptures together. Everyone's talking about politics, it seems. Even my, my son, who is a sophomore at Millbrook High School, was, was running with the cross-country team this past week, and they were at, apparently having an, an argument or a dialogue about politics while they were running. And they asked my son Joshua what his views were on things, and he says, guys, I'm just not very political. And, uh, <laughs> and my goal is not to be political. Uh, it, it is uh, instead to be uh, biblical. So we're going to think about how do we love one another and, and stay united despite our differences? Uh, how, how can we be good citizens and, and uh, love those who have varying views of us? How can we pray for those in leadership as the Bible teaches us to do? Uh, how can we be devoted to biblical justice and mercy? Now, these are not new ideas. These are not novel ideas. These are, these are basic ideas about how to live out our dual citizenship as citizens of heaven and citizens uh, of America. And the Bible does speak about these things, and so we want to look at it. Uh, there's particular relevance, obviously, for this time of year, but we also should remember the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions about these things because the Bible was written in a, uh, a quite a different kind of world and context than in an American democracy. But it does have some things to say, and we want to consider those. It has a whole lot to say about the fact that the Lord reigns over all, that he's in control, that we can rest in him. And it has a whole lot to say about the unity of the church. And so you'll be hearing these themes as we move along. Now, if you don't know, now you know, 
We have at IDC diverse political perspectives as well as personal backgrounds in this church. That's true among our elders. Uh, that's true uh, probably in your small group. Um, but as Shane pointed out last week, we are not united around a political party or some affiliation. We are united around our devotion to Jesus Christ. It's not the donkey that unites us, nor the elephant that unites us, it's the lamb that unites us. And we celebrate that unity that we have. It's, it's the good news of Jesus Christ that unites us. We rally around the truth that Jesus is the Lord, and we unite our hearts in the prayer, Lord, your kingdom come. And so we want our, our love for one another to grow. We want to maintain a, an attractive witness in a washing world during these times. That's, that's far more important than winning a political argument with someone. You think about it, Jesus took Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for the Romans, big government, and Simon the zealot, don't tread on me, and made both of them his disciple. He transformed them, and, and he can do the same for all of us. So my prayer is that we, we would be able to transcend political views and celebrate the unity that we have in Jesus. And if we have conversations, and this is in no way saying you should not have a political conversation with someone, but that we do it in the spirit of the New Testament. We do it keeping the kingdom of God in mind with understanding where our unity is found. And so to do that, we have to think biblically. We have to be willing to have our idols exposed and put them to death. We have to look, overlook minor offenses, perhaps. We have to calm down and love and honor our brothers and sisters. We must refuse to sow seeds of division with our words, either in person or online. We must learn to put our ultimate trust in the Lord. And as Christians, we long for the coming kingdom more than the triumph of a certain candidate or political figure. After all, folks, presidents come and go but Jesus reigns forever, and he's not up for re-election. He is the king now, and he will be the king forever. And so we can all breathe deeply and say, we're going to be all right. Okay, right? Earthly politics is important, but they're not ultimate. Christ and his kingdom are ultimate. And so that's what we're going to be thinking through as we move along. Now, that's the first introduction. The second one now. How was the first one? It's okay? No feedback, okay? Uh, Romans 12. Uh, you're aware that we've studied this passage. In fact, all four passages that I'm going to look at, we've actually studied before as a church. You may or may not have been here. Um, there's a new section that has begun in chapter 12 as Paul has been dealing in the first 11 chapters with the indicatives of the gospel. That is who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, that which is true about us. And it's a marvelous section of Scripture. Now in Romans 12, he begins to talk about the imperatives that flow out of the gospel, how it is we are to live among one another and uh, in this particular world. And he says in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the very familiar passage to those who've been reading the Bible for a while, that we live in view of God's mercy. All of life is to be lived in view of God's mercy. It's been mercy that he's been talking about, God's love, his grace toward us as sinners in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And we are to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to God, our whole life devoted to him, consecrated to him. And to do that, we cannot be conformed to the mindset of this world, but we need a renewed mind. We need to think according to the scriptures and by the spirit. And one of the ways we offer up ourselves to God with a renewed mind 
is by offering up ourselves to the church. And that's where he goes immediately in chapter 12, verse 3, as he begins to think about how we use our spiritual gifts. And having dealt with that, Paul then pivots in chapter 12, verse 9, the text under consideration, to begin to talk to us about how we live in biblical community. And so in verses 9 to 16, he gives a series of exhortations to the church who have experienced the mercy of God, who've been given this new mind, and he says, here are some countercultural actions and attitudes that you need as you live out your life together. Verse 17, and then through the rest of chapter 13, is really about how we live in view of outsiders, how we live in relationship to our enemies, the government, our neighbor, and how we live in light of this, this fallen age. But chapter 12, verses 9 to 16, is all about how we live out our lives together as new creations. Now, here, this is very important, understanding a bit of the background of Romans, because uh, it has so much relevance for us today. In Romans, Paul is dealing with a conflict, and you see it really detailed in chapter 14, which you can read uh, for yourself, where Paul is dealing with the Jew and Gentile uh, conflict over diets and over days, over opinions and preferences. In in fact, he says in chapter 14, verse 1, do not quarrel over opinions. And so uh, you've got a a weak and strong uh, explanation going on, the weaker conscience, the stronger conscience. Uh, And that's important. It underlies the entire book of Romans. And uh, you may recall, as we looked at this uh, several years ago, uh, what appears to have happened historically is in A.D. 49, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because of a disturbance over one named Crestus or, or Christos, the Christ. Uh, this is consistent with Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 as well. And so what happened is uh, the Jew, Jewish believers were expelled from Rome. Uh, they returned in A.D. 54, but by that time, the Gentile uh, 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 Christians had, had uh, basically assumed the majority of, of the church. So the, the leadership was Gentile. Uh, the meetings were in houses and not synagogues. Uh, and the Jewish believers found many of these cultural practices and preferences offensive. And all of this gives rise to Paul's glorious vision of a multi-ethnic church. Now, all of this lies behind the book of Romans. Jew and Gentile unity. And Paul knows that the only possible way to get these believers united is for them to rally together around the gospel. Not preferences, not opinions, but rather around the good news. So he just goes ahead and spends 11 chapters on the gospel, building this massive foundation for them to understand that the unity they have is far greater than the differences that they may have. Now, you remember when Peter said in 2 Peter 3, there are some things that Paul said are very hard to understand. (laughs) And most of those would be in Romans 1 to 11. But beginning in Romans 12, they're not necessarily hard to understand, they're hard to do. And that's why we need a renewed mind. That's why we must not be conformed to the mindset of the world. It's, It's about relationships. And you guys know relationships are hard. It's one thing to tease out theological principles. It's another thing to love people who have varying viewpoints on things that are not related to the gospel or people who are just basically hard to deal with. There's a reason why we have commands like bear with one another (laughs) because there's some difficult people in Christ's fellowship and and you may be one of them. And, and, And I may be one of them. 
I, I love the line of the cartoon when Linus says, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. Uh, it's very hard often to, to live this out. So we, we need instructions, we need encouragements, and that's what I'm here to give you tonight as we think about our life together in this divided age. One other historical point before we move into it. This was not just a church <clears throat> that was dealing with conflict among Jew and Gentile, but it was also a hierarchical culture or an honor and shame culture. And you keep that in mind as you look at these instructions. They would have been radically uh, strange to live out in this honor and shame culture. There was, there was not only the diversity of Jew and Gentile, but, but you have people who are working in, in lower class positions, and you had wealthy individuals as well, but each are called to outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, each are to practice hospitality. And they're different for, difficult for us to live out as well as we live in a, 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 a toxic political uh, climate, in, in a divided age, in a, as people call it, a cancel culture a culture that assumes the worst. But if we live this out like the first century church, we, we offer the world a radically different vision of life. We give them a glimpse of the kingdom of God. We show them what the kingdom that's coming really looks like. And not, not a perfect glimpse because we're not perfect, but we give them a glimpse to show them something that is, that is totally different, where there's honor, where there's humility, where there's, where there's love, where there's zeal for the Lord. And when we fail each other in, in relationships, we forgive each other. We reconcile with each other. And that too was a display of the kingdom of God. And so let's, let's be about this business. Now, the passage is almost impossible to outline because uh, every sentence is almost like a sermon or a sermon series. Uh, but I want to put them in, in five groups, five ways in which we live out our life together. Number one is love and honor. Number two is passion and perseverance. Number three is generosity and hospitality. Number four is rejoicing and weeping. And number five is harmony and humility. This is how we live out our life together all the time, but they're important instructions for us to think about in our particular cultural moment. They are, they are exhortations that are motivated and empowered and shaped by the gospel. So let's look at them one at a time. Number one, love and honor. Paul begins by saying, let love be genuine. This is really like the header for the section. This passage is similar to 1 Corinthians 13 in that in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And right in the middle, he talks about love. And now you see that Paul has already talked about spiritual gifts and he transitions to, to talk about love. This is, um, some call it the Christian love ethic that Paul is dealing with in Romans 12 and 13. It's going to be a dominant focus through the rest of the book of Romans as he deals with uh, Jew and Gentile distinctions. Here he says, let love be without literally hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. In other words, love should never be a disguise for ulterior agendas. Christian love is to be free of pretense and hypocrisy. It's not marked by mere platitudes, but a compassion that leads to action. And this was really relevant in the first century context as life was structured around formal relationships that included the expectation to act in accordance with one's role in society. So often one's heart did not align with one's actions. And so Paul says, no, in the church, let love be genuine. Let, don't let love be ritualized, but let it be sincere from the heart. So don't be fake, but truly be compassionate. Truly forgive 
truly apologize, truly show mercy and grace. Now, if you just glancing over at Romans chapter 14, you got Paul talking about how um, the, the weaker and stronger brother and sister are to write, relate to one another. And really the bottom line of chapter 14, I think, is found in verse 15 when he says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Right, that, that love is to dominate the, 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 the relationship uh, as you think about things that are not primary issues. The question is, am I loving my brother or sister? And then he adds to this in verse nine, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now this is important as you think about love because you see right after Paul says, let love be genuine, he says to abhor what is evil. In other words, love does not allow anything to persist in the name of love. Love actually hates certain things because you love uh, your brother and sister. There's, it's a holy love that the Bible calls us to. These are two very strong words. Abhor, that is to hate it exceedingly. Abhor what is evil. And to cling, like in a marriage, clinging to your spouse. Or like Mookie Betts failed to do in center field last night, to cling to the baseball. To, to, to cling to, to uh, what is good, to hold fast to it. So love is not genuine when it leads a person to do evil, when it allows a person to do evil, or when it avoids addressing evil. There is a distinction to Christian love. And this is really unique because in our culture we think love is allowing people to do and say whatever and no one has the right to say this, this is right or this is wrong. But that comes from a low view of the holiness of God, a low view of the love of God or the, the law of God. No, love knows the difference between right and wrong. Like if you parented like this, it would be a total disaster. Like little Johnny, he's only three, but he wanted to drive here tonight. And so I love him, so I let him drive. No, like you, 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 you're, you're better than that, okay? Uh, you're more sensible than that. Love does not rejoice, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, at wrongdoing. So we hold fast to what is good, abhor what is evil. Big emphasis here in this, this paragraph we'll look at next week, verse 21, when he says, <clears throat> do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the church is to hate what God hates and to love what God loves and to be known for doing good. Then he adds in verse 10 another note about love when he says, love one another with brotherly affection. He uses two family words in Greek, Philostorgi, to, to love dearly, <clears throat> and Philadelphia, brotherly, sisterly, love. There should be affection and warmth <clears throat> in, in the body of Christ because we're a family. And you think about the first century world, how radical this command would be in this Roman context, where there was various levels of affections expressed depending on one's uh, status or class, and what a massive encouragement this would have been to those without a family or perhaps to migrant workers or, or servants or people of other certain classes or those who have been rejected by their family because they became a Christian. But it was in the church that they experienced warmth and affection. This is a beautiful vision of what it is uh, we are to, how, how we are to relate to one another. And then Paul says in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Another radical command in a hierarchical world Peter Oakes, uh, who's written a great book on uh, the context of the book of Romans, he says, if, 
at church, I hold the door open for someone. It is not revolutionary, whoever it may be. In the first century house church, if a slave held a door open for their master, no one would notice. If a master held the door open for a slave, this would be very radical. Giving each person honor individually in first century terms is outrageous. And we live in a, in a somewhat of a culture of dishonor. But the church, again, is to give the world a glimpse of something beautifully different, to outdo one another in showing honor. You remember the, the text in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 17, when Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So give each relationship its due. You notice there's an action that corresponds to uh, the group. So you've got everyone. What should we do to everyone in society? We honor them because they're made in the Imago Dei, the, the image of God. And then related to the church, he says, love the brotherhood. And then in a relationship to God, he says, fear God. Love the brotherhood, fear God. That is, only he is to be revered and worshiped. When uh, they came to Jesus and asked him about taxes, remember, he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. The coin bears Caesar's image, give it to him. You bear God's image, give your life to him, revere him. And then politically, he says, honor the emperor, even though in that world with Nero was not necessarily the guy that was, you know, the stalwart of, of character, uh, but he is to, to be honored even if one doesn't uh, particularly like the emperor or uh, agree with his, his policies to respect the office. It's a culture of honor that the church is to have. And so love and honor is group number one, okay? Pretty easy, right? Number two, passion and perseverance. Paul says, be uh, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. You notice the passion in this verse. Christian love is not cold or indifferent. Do not be slothful in zeal. Previously, he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, to lead with enthusiasm or zeal. He says, be fervent in spirit, or I think it's better translated by the CSB, in the, the spirit, capitalized, the, in, in the, the Holy Spirit literally rendered to be set on fire by the Spirit. Isn't that an amazing prayer to, to pray? that Lord, would you set us on fire by the Spirit? This is uh, similar to Pentecost, right, when the Spirit came with tongues of fire. <clears throat> or when it's said of Apollos in Acts 18 that he was, he was fervent in spirit. So now we, we've kind of shifted from our relationship to one another to our relationship to God. That, and, and I think that's important to see. To, to, to live out these relational actions, one needs a heart devoted to the Lord, to, to be set on fire by the, by the Lord, to, to, to be under his lordship, to be empowered by his spirit. And so he says, serve the Lord. So in loving one another, it, we're serving the Lord. He is the, to be the object of our zeal. The, a, a wrongly directed zeal is dangerous, but this is the, the rightly ordered zeal that glorifies God and blesses people. <clears throat> Be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. You think about the first century world as Oaks puts in his book. Not everyone was exhorted to work hard. Uh, the wealthier, for, uh, for example, were not. But in the church, everyone is to be zealous for the Lord, to be set on fire by the spirit. Now, I love the fact that God gives us commands like this because it shows us that he knows our frame. He knows our frailty. He knows that our passions often cool, so he exhorts us. 
He, he, he rebukes us. He corrects us, not with a whip, but with his word. And he, he, he forces us to do a bit of self-examination. Ha, ha, have my passions cooled? Lord, I want to be ablaze by your spirit. To rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer. This is the, the theme of perseverance in this verse, I think, that underlies each of these phrases. To be pa- uh, patient in tribulation implies that life is hard. And we are to, to not just sort of tolerate it, but the idea is to, to endure faithfully. To be patient in tribulation. <clears throat> and when we do that, we can still have a sense of hope and joy in Christ. We can rejoice in hope. And we also can find strength in prayer. So life is hard, but we can still rejoice in hope. And we seek the Lord in prayer. There's not a day in the Christian's life where we don't really need this verse. It's such a wonderful summary of life, isn't it? There was an amen. Right? This verse hangs over my, uh, our, my bed. It's our bed. We sleep together. That's my wife. Uh, to, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Because we just feel the, the significance of it. And perhaps Kimberly knows she has to put up with me. So she used to be patient in tribulation. Uh, but, but we know life is hard. We know ministry is hard. What do we do when these days get hard? Well, notice what we do here. We rejoice in hope. And we're, we're constant in prayer. If, 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 we, if we don't take all of this, we, we get in all sorts of, of, of trouble, right? If you're not rejoicing in hope, what happens in tribulation? But you start murmuring. You turn inward. You become self-absorbed. And, and if you're in tribulation but you're not praying, then again, passion's cool. You, you, you can grow into anxiety, into despair. So the way we endure hardship faithfully is by rejoicing and praying. And if we're not rejoicing and praying, we won't be persevering. And so this, these are two disciplines in our life of everyday life, groaning in prayer and rejoicing in Christ. That's how we get through the tribulation, until we see Christ. Number three, generosity and hospitality. This is another wonderful verse in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Two very practical ways you love people. Expressing your love is by being generous and be welcoming. Some of you this year have just been very generous givers to the church, you deserve a big thank you. As we give to the church, as we um, give our offerings, we, we advance the mission of Christ. As my friend Ross says, money is mission's ammunition. Right, we, we fire away at the evil one as we advance the gospel. We're, we're able to bless those who are in need. This has been a wonderful year of people giving to our benevolence fund as we've been able to bless people who've lost jobs this year and who have been in need. Our giving supports the ministry of the church, and we should always remember that giving and generosity blesses us. It's more blessed to give than receive. It's for our own spiritual benefit. That's why Jesus ties giving to our hearts. He wants us to be free from the entanglements of this world, to find our treasure in him. And one of the ways we deal with greed and our self-centeredness is by being a generous giver. As Paul says, a cheerful giver which is hard to do and unless you really think much on the gospel, remembering that God is a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
And as we think about his generosity and his kindness, we, we live with, with open hands. And we live with open homes. As he says, seek to show hospitality, re- reflecting on the fact that God has welcomed us. We who had no homeland have inherited the kingdom. We've been brought into the king's table like Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel, who's living out in Lodabar, who's, who's lonely in Lodabar. And King David welcomes him to the table like one of the king's sons. And we have experienced that kind of warmth. Now, the, the, the Greek really captures something of the, 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 the beauty of this idea, the word hospitality. Uh, philoxenia, which is a, a love of stranger. You hear that word, xenia, uh, you, you know the word xenophobia, which is a fear of strangers. But hospitality is the opposite. Philoxenia, it is a love of strangers. This was to be... Uh, something practiced in the church as they had needs and lack of hotels uh, and just opening up our, our homes and our, our lives to those who are in need, to, to have a love for the stranger that the Bible calls us to have uh, throughout uh, the, the biblical text. And Paul says there has to be an intentionality about it. Like he says, seek to show hospitality or CSB puts it to pursue it. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message paraphrase. It's really relevant for our times. He wrote this way before our times. Be inventive in hospitality, <laughs> which, which means in, during COVID it might, look, it might look a bit different, right? Hospitality is not entertaining. It's about serving. It's not about the host. It's about the guest. And warm hospitality can transform a person. Over a meal or on your back deck, any act of sacrifice and love that you put forward to bless another person. You know, on a plane recently, I was watching the, the movie Les Mis, which is not near as good as the actual musical, in my professional opinion, as one who is a great singer. But uh, they, the, the, the movie, uh, if you don't know the storyline, it's, it's uh, well, one of the scenes has a beautiful picture of hospitality. Uh, the, the, the bishop opens up uh, his home and he blesses uh, the key figure, Jean Valjean, who has spent 19 years uh, in prison because he stole a mouthful of bread. And then he tried to run away, and he's back in prison. So he's there for 19 years. But he, he gets released only to revert to this same life of, of petty crime. He can't get a job because of his conviction. And so he's this man who's just full of shame, and he can't find any work, and no one will welcome him. And then he, he goes to the church, the great reputation for the church, and the bishop brings him in, and he gives him food, and he gives him shelter. But then Valjean uh, flees, and he steals the church's most expensive candlesticks. <laughs> now, we don't have any of those unless you have, uh, you know, some idea you want to do that here at Mago Day. And we have law enforcement here. Anyway, uh, he, 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 takes the, uh, <laughs> he takes the candlesticks, and the police catch him. And they want to, uh, you know, uh, put him back in jail. And so they bring him back to the priest. And the priest says, no, no, I, that was my gift. I'm going to give him the candlesticks. In fact, you, you forgot two more. And Valjean experiences mercy and grace, not just warmth. And he, he says, I won't sing it. I'll read it. My life was a war that could never be won. Yet why did I allow that man, that's the priest, to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me his brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world 
this world that has always hated me. I'll escape, he goes on to say, now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean is nothing now, another story must begin. It's a pivotal moment in this man's life by the simple act of hospitality, of expressing kindness and grace and mercy. He goes on to become a factory worker and a mayor. And in in the the movie, of course, he has to run from Russell Crowe the whole time uh, as well, but that's another illustration. Hospitality is a practical way to reflect the warmth and kindness and grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. He has welcomed us, sinners and sufferers, and he's transformed us. Seek to show hospitality. Number four, there's rejoicing and weeping that should take place. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. I think this verse looks more outwardly to uh, those who oppose Christians, so I'll leave it really for next week as we think about that in verses 17 to 21. But I think it's important just to underscore how the, the goal when it comes to uh, dealing with those who oppose us is not simply refraining from re- uh, uh, retaliation, though we should do that, and not simply that we forgive them, but that we actually seek their good. He says, bless them, those who persecute you. Pray for God's blessing on them. Then he says, when it comes to the church, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. To, to come alongside your brothers and sisters in the highs and lows of life. Again, you think about this hierarchical culture in the first century world. It would be really strange for the elite to weep with the poor. But here, everyone is called to participate in this, in, in, in empathizing and sympathizing, celebrating when someone is celebrating. And for some, you, might find, you might find it more difficult to do the first part of rejoicing with someone who is rejoicing because you can grow envious or jealous of one's success. A real sign that you're growing in grace is you have an ability to rejoice with those who rejoice. And weeping, how do we, how do, we do this well? <laughs> well, we just show up, don't we? We sympathize. Weeping means you don't have to have a great speech. You're just there. You're underneath the burden of another brother or sister. And we will never weep with those who weep if we're self-absorbed. The fact that Jesus wept with his friends at Lazarus' tomb is a remarkable thought. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. But, But he didn't say to his friends, oh, you guys, wait just a minute. I got something up my sleeve. He wept because his friends were weeping. He wept with them. He's not a detached savior. He enters into grief. Jesus has both in that passage, the ministry of tears and the ministry of truth. And we need both the ministry of tears and the ministry of truth, an integrated mind and heart, emotions and theology, tears and truth. I love how Keller puts it. The best people will be the biggest weepers. Not a sign of immaturity, but of maturity. They cannot avoid grief, but are pulled into it. That's very Romans 12, 15. To weep with those who weep. What a sign of love. What a beautiful vision Paul gives us here of community. And finally, harmony and humility. Verse 16 He first says, live in harmony with one another. Paul's language is very similar to the language in Philippians chapter 2 that Shane helped us look at last week, to be of the same mind. 
And again, I don't have to overstress this, but you think about the diversity in the Roman church with Jew, Gentile, and, and, and class differences and so on. This would, would have been a remarkable sight to see all of them living in harmony. And Paul builds this whole argument and he, he lands in Romans 15 verses 5 and 6 praying for harmony, that God would give them this kind of unity as a wonderful witness of the kingdom of God. Now, this is a lovely command, but we all know it's very hard to do because this, this calls us to, to work through conflict, misunderstanding, miscommunication, uh, wounds, many, many issues. This is, this is real life stuff. It's, it's heart work to, to live in harmony. And you see here that something important to, to note is that the goal is not simply to have the absence of strife among believers, but to have the presence of harmony have the presence of unity in a relationship. The goal is not simply to not argue with each other, but to have harmony and to have unity. And, and if you do that, you, you experience the blessing of like Psalm 133 that talks about, behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell in unity. And he gives those two images of the, the oil running down the robe of Aaron, this consecration oil of his anointing, which symbolized holiness and symbolize the fact that Israel was living out their calling in the world. And he says it's like the dew of Hermon and the, and the huge mountain of Hermon nourishes that whole region and makes it fruitful. And he says unity is like that. It's, it's living out our calling in the world and it's a blessing to the world. It, it makes us fruitful. And so he says live in harmony with one another. And to do that, the next part of the verse, there has to be a presence of humility. Without a heart of humility, harmony cannot exist. So he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, and don't be wise in your own eyes. C.S. Lewis has written so many good things about uh, pride and humility. And uh, I came across this quote this past week, and it is a wonderful note. He says, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride is the ruthless. It never stops. It's sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. And so humility, not being haughty, is the opposite of that, right? Like pride will never make you happy. Self-absorption will never do that. Self-absorption makes you miserable. Humility, thinking about others, is what brings a sense of joy. He says, so do not be haughty. And one of the signs that you're not haughty is that you associate with the lowly. Remember how Jesus says, if you see someone who's hungry, you feed them. And if you see someone needs clothing, you, you clothe them. And doing this, he says, you're doing it unto me. In other words, you are associating with me when you are associating with the lowly. The Phillips paraphrase puts this well. Never be condescending, but make real friends with the poor. Or as Peterson puts it in the paraphrase, don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. So to do this, we have to put on the mind of Christ, recognizing that a Christian should never say, this person is beneath me. This task is beneath me. No, Jesus didn't consider our sinful condition to be beneath him. But he associated with us in our lowly state and has exalted us as his people. So what a portrait of our life together that Paul gives us. These are very countercultural attitudes 
and actions. And the reality is, church, we will fail to live these out at times. And when we do, we go to Christ who never failed at these. We receive mercy and grace, and in and through them, we live them out. In fact, you think about it, these verses provide a beautiful portrait of Jesus himself. And that shouldn't surprise us because the church is the body of Christ, the expression of the character and life of Christ. Jesus loved the church to death. Jesus loved with a genuine love, not with hypocrisy. He hated what was evil. He loved what was good. He died for evil people to make them good. He loved his brothers and sisters with brotherly affection. He washed their feet, for example. He was dishonored so that you and I could be honored. He was the man of zeal. He took up the psalm, zeal for your house has consumed me. He was not slothful. He endured tribulation, including the cross, was constant in prayer, even praying for his enemies on the cross. No one is more generous, benevolent than Jesus, who though he was rich for our sake, became poor so that we could be rich in him. He has shown us the greatest hospitality one could ever show us. He's the friend of sinners who says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's prepared a place for us. He loved his enemies, not with a sword in his hand, but with nails in his hands. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced at a wedding, and he wept when Lazarus died. Jesus calls people of every tribe, language, people, nation to live in harmony, and he brings that beautiful harmony, and we'll see it one day when our faith turns to sight, and Jesus has associated with the lowly, the, the, takes a repentant thief with him to paradise. He died for us. We who have broken his command to love, he has forgiven us. He has placed us in a new family. He's made us citizens of heaven. He's given us the Spirit's power to love the family of God and this broken world. So church, let's honor our King with our attitudes and our actions at all times, including this particular cultural moment. Reminding one another that soon Jesus will return and usher in a one-party kingdom. And the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. As John puts it in Revelation 12, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. To which we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. What a wonderful vision of our life together. Grant us grace for we need it. Grant us mercy. Grant us, Lord, fresh zeal for the Lord. Help us to be set on fire by the Spirit, to not be conformed to the thought processes of this world, but to live out a renewed mind as we offer up ourselves to you in worship. Lord Jesus, we do these, these things because you first loved us. You've shown us the way and you've given us the power. And so I pray that your church would put these these actions on display for the good of one another, for the good of our witness, and ultimately to the glory of our great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen.